Hello, welcome to Loud in the Words, the pod that's about ideas that improve lives. I'm Jules Pretty from the University of Essex. Delighted to welcome a special guest to the show, Craig Bennett, Chief Executive of the Wildlife Trusts, one of the foremost and most wise leaders and campaigners in the environmental movement in the UK. In this episode, it's wildlife, conservation, public engagement, policy, social inequality, climate change, few, a lot of stuff that comes under this heading, and I hope a little bit about hope itself, how some things can get better. Very warm welcome, Craig, to the show. Thank you, Jules. Wonderful to be joining you. Thanks for that lovely introduction. Well, let's start with a bit about the Wildlife Trusts, a bit of background on um, them as, as an organisation, part of an amazing kind of ecosystem of environmental organisations in the UK. Tell us a bit about uh, about uh, the Wildlife Trusts. Yeah, so technically we're what you'd call a federation of independent wildlife charities, uh, 46 individual uh, local wildlife trusts across the UK, ranging from Essex Wildlife Trust to Bedfordshire, Cambridgeshire, Northamptonshire Wildlife Trust, or national ones like Scottish Wildlife Trust, Ulster Wildlife Trust, and and many wildlife trusts in Wales as well. Uh, collectively, uh, we add up to a huge, one of the largest nature conservation organisations in the world. To put it in perspective, we have, we're well known for our nature reserves, but perhaps a lot of people don't know that we have more nature reserves than McDonald's has got restaurants in the UK. Uh, in fact, a thousand more. Um, we also estimate that 60% of the British population live within three miles of one of our reserves. Uh, we have around 3,000 staff collectively, over 900,000 uh, supporters now. Um, we actually run one of the biggest education programs of any uh, charity group in the in the UK. So over half a million school children go through our uh, education programs every single year. Um, and uh, we're well known, yes, for everything from what we do at a local level, and that's our USP. But collectively, we add up rather like a beautiful murmuration uh, into this uh, extraordinary flock of wildlife trusts uh, that has a real impact nationally. And actually, as I said, uh, represents one of the largest uh, conservation organisations anywhere in the world. And, and the kinds of outcomes that the wildlife trusts with these members, volunteers, reserves... Um, independent organisations across the UK, the kinds of outcomes that um, are being achieved, uh, what sorts of things would you point towards? Yeah, that's a very interesting discussion. I mean, uh, we obviously started over 100 years ago uh, in, in some, some very uh, forward-thinking people at the time that essentially came up with the concept of what we would now call nature reserves, essentially sometimes buying up bits of land or acquiring land in one form or another to protect us, if you like, the last relics of bits of nature when everything else was being trashed around them. Uh, but for a long time, for several decades, we've gone well beyond that concept. That's obviously very important. My goodness, it's, uh, we'd be in a much worse state if we didn't have those kind of arcs that are the, our nature reserves. But for a long time, we've been working way beyond the nature reserves, uh, working with farmers and other landowners, working with public policy and campaigns and engaging communities uh, right at the local level and across the nation uh, to really try to reverse the decline of nature. And uh, we just over the last couple of years, we've agreed a whole new strategy for 2030 that kind of brings all our wildlife trusts together. Uh, with a very, very clear, uh, refreshed kind of vision and focus, which is we don't want to just slow down the declines of wildlife. We want to reverse them. And we have this big, bold ambition that by 2030, 
where we're seeing uh, nature in a, a much better state, more abundant, uh, more space for nature, nature working again, what, you know, would crazy concepts like our wetlands might be wet again, those kind of things. And absolutely uh, seeing that we've turned around all those graphs that are pointing in the wrong direction and starting to see uh, nature becoming stronger again. And so the uh, the efforts required to, in a sense, stop bad things quite often are rather different to creating good things. And we very we can focus, we can think of the bads, you know, sewage in water, um, fracturing of habitats, actual loss of species that you've talked about. I don't see so many, whatever it is, swifts each year. And so we kind of feel that. Um, but to make things better quite often requires different sorts of actions that might be at local level, as you've described, but a policy um, actions. Do you, do you think that we've got the, the capacity, the range of options in front of us to shift away from talking about trying to stop the bads to making this kind of improvement that you've described that we so obviously need? Yeah, I mean, we definitely need both. And I think we've definitely got the capacity and actually, I think they're more linked than we might think. I mean, taking the example of uh, trying to stop sewage going to our rivers, uh, which we, uh, which has got so much public attention and rightly so. Of course, there's kind of technical engineering issues there that need to happen to, to stop that happening. But equally, if we think kind of further, there's a, there's a lot more around the sort of public policy community side of things that makes a difference about looking at the whole wider system. And actually, uh, not so much sewage, but wider kind of looking at water catchments. The big solutions there are about catchment management, the big solutions about nature-based solutions. In other words, how can we put wetlands back into our landscape? How can we stop pollutants entering the, the rivers in the first place? Um, and so actually, when you talk about the positive agenda, you know, agenda to make things better, if you like, Sometimes that's a, a better way of trying to stop the bad stuff happening than just trying to focus on the bad stuff. You kind of need that vision, that pull through to turn things around. Yes, we need campaigns and efforts and absolutely stop the bad stuff happening. But unless you can point to what the solution is, sometimes, you know, you get stuck in those. So I think that's uh, incredibly important to have that. And the other thing I would just say is, I mean, certainly one of the things I feel really passionately about uh, and I've seen throughout my whole career, is, you know, it's normally local communities, actually. It's normally people that offer the leadership on these issues. Um, you know, we we can spend a lot of time hoping that politicians will act and put the right policies in place. They normally do so when local communities build up a campaign to ask them to do so. Uh, so uh, actually the leadership, I would say, so often comes from the grassroots and then politicians follow. And that's sometimes the quickest way to make things happen. That's a really interesting point. And you you previously were um, leader of Friends of the Earth and came to the Wildlife Trust having kind of led an organisation that was both urban and rural based and very broad in its um, uh, achievements and actions and uh, did something about tying together the social action that you've described with environmental conservation, sustainability goals at the same time, how to bring people together around specific campaigns, uh, social collaboration is is at the core of this, isn't it? Independent of what is happening at, at government level. But the aim is to create that movement and then to see um, the, the, the hope flowing through upwards a little bit. Is that is that how you yeah, saw it? Absolutely right, Jules. I mean, look, if there's one thing that I, I think has stayed constant in my career, it's a very firm belief 
that, you know, the bolder you want to be in the solutions that you're pushing for, the more that has to be driven and uh, by uh, local communities and more to the point, diverse, empowered local communities to kind of make it happen. You know, there are no solutions to environmental problems that can be done to people. The only ones that will last and endure are those that are done by people. So we absolutely have to make sure that there can be nothing about the sustainability agenda that feel that it's being pushed on people. It's much better that it comes from people. And that's how we're going to succeed. Now, you know, in the short term, that feels like that's sort of a bit messy and complicated and you know it'd be much easier if this politician over here pulled a lever made it happen but actually in the long term there's no doubt to my mind uh that you know unless we constantly build that groundswell and support communities to drive the action and, and lead from the front uh then we won't get as far as we need to and, and not fast enough i mean i think there was another thing that that i mean i was thrilled when i was approached about the wildlife trust job because there was another thing that I felt really strongly about is throughout my career, I'd often seen this bizarre siloing of climate change and nature issues and, and putting them in different boxes. And I'd, I'd long felt, I mean, I'd even had people argue to me, very senior people argued to me before now that, you know, one was more important than the other. And that we should all focus just on, in, in one week at Friends of the Earth, I had a, a very respected person argue to me, that we should uh, focus entirely on climate change and stop all our work on nature. And then a week later, uh, another respected person argued exactly the opposite. I mean, this is madness. You know, we can't hope to solve the climate crisis unless we put nature in recovery. We can't hope to solve the ecological crisis unless we tackle climate change. And more to the point, nearly all the solutions to one are solutions to the other, and, and they need to work together. So I certainly saw the Wildlife Trust as a brilliant place to be able to try and join up those agendas and to make sure that we had a much more kind of holistic approach uh, in society to how we tackle these two absolutely urgent uh, emergencies. And they have similar proximate causes. I mean, that's that's the obvious answer. Alongside um, social inequality, the energy crisis, the food crisis, these all come from the same sorts of organisation of the structure of the economy and our politics yeah. as well so we d dealing with exactly. one has the advantage of being quite often multifunctional it has a impact somewhere else in dealing with one and so i think we need to tell that story don't we yeah i mean they're both uh symptoms really of the bigger problem which is that at the moment uh society hasn't yet worked out global society hasn't yet worked out how to live fairly within environmental limits and i see that actually this the Sometimes, you know, environmentalism or sustainability is held up as a as a barrier to progress. You know, I've had people say to me before, oh, this is all terribly important, but, you know, you can't stop progress. Again, I think that's total nonsense. I think actually learning to live, you know, whether it's nine, nine, eight billion people, nine billion people, 10 billion people, whatever, learning to live fairly within environmental limits is the next step of human progress. And goodness, if it's not, I don't know what it is because I can't see that there is a next step of human progress unless we figure that out. So I think this is the biggest challenge, the most exciting challenge and opportunity of the 21st century. And, you know, with a bit of luck, uh, thanks to the evolution of modern environmentalism and sustainability and those kind of concepts, uh, we might be the first human civilization to work out how to live on this planet as if we mean to stay. Yeah. So could we explore those kind of ecological and social priorities and how they come together a little bit, bit perhaps with a couple of examples? So wildlife organisations are not just addressing wildlife and conservation organisations are not just thinking about conserving a 
particular species. Um, uh, the, the, the breadth has, has widened beyond ecological into social spaces. And I, I'm reminded of a conversation I had with a, uh, an old skipper, an 80-year-old um, uh, ex-drifter and trawler skipper in, in a port in the east of England. And he said to me, you know, when we still had the fishing, we travelled across the North Sea and the Eastern North Atlantic to other ports um, in Norway, Iceland, Denmark, north of Scotland, so forth. And we came back with gifts and stories from these places. And he described how actually the sea was, was a close place and they knew places a thousand miles away more than they did somewhere 10 miles inland. Um, and that kind of sharing of, of culture and story meant they felt a kind of closeness and attachment. And then he said, of course, when the fishing went, when there was the ecological collapse, that was followed by cultural change because they lost the contacts and stories and became more embittered because there wasn't an alternative to that. So there's something about how this sort of cultural change and ecological change ties very closely together and kind of hits people hard when we see yeah. that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, my goodness, you've touched on something I feel really strongly about here, Jules. I, I think perhaps a mistake, actually, that the environmental movement has made quite a lot over the last 100 years or so is we've always kind of um, blurred, we've, we've always kind of assumed that uh, community is the same as place and place is the same as community. Now, they're both incredibly important. But, you know, for example, in, in the early days of Friends of the Earth, you know, Friends of the Earth had local groups. Uh, in the wildlife trusts, we have wildlife trusts defined by place and locality. And that's absolutely right, because place is incredibly important. And it and it rolls up with identity and uh, particularly on environmental issues. A lot of this stuff happens locally and in a particular place. So that makes sense. However, you know, humans get together in communities and often those communities are defined by place uh, and that makes a lot of sense and we will all be part of a local community that we're part of. But, you know, we're also part of communities that define by things other than place. We're defined by um, our, our professions. We're defined by our interests, our hobbies, our race, our ethnicity, our uh, uh, other forms of identity. And I think it's been we've been pretty slow generally as an environmental movement wider to understand that. Um, and that's the thing is if you're part of a you might be part of a fishing community and you might feel you've got greater connections with uh, other fisher folk on the other side of the sea than people that live very close to you. Uh, if you we, you might be part of a of the Bangladeshi community and you feel really strong ties and identity as part of a Bangladeshi diaspora across the world and links back to Bangladesh. And that's that's really, really exciting. And that's how people make sense of the world. And I think what we need to do is understand that these kind of really strong ties and binds that are there for us, that identify us as part of lots of many different communities all at once. We all define ourselves as part of these different communities. And they're all communities the reason this is important is it tends to be communities that take action. And so actually what we need to do is constantly be thinking about how we can empower people to come together in communities that make sense to them rather than us as perhaps as organisations and empower those communities to kind of take action. And that is really important also then 
for delivering on environmental justice because we cannot possibly, cannot hope to achieve sustainability unless everyone feels they can be part of it and benefit from that. And that means that it's got to be done in a fair way. So all of these things are inextricably linked if we're going to achieve what I was saying before, that next step of human progress, which is 9 billion people learning to live fairly within environmental limits. Yeah, and I, I like that very much. There's something I'm very interested in hope uh, and how we bring kind of languages about what the world could look like if we took the kind of action that you were just describing. Um, uh, and it's, this is not a Pollyanna-style hope, a, a kind of just, just using the language in some sort of way. Rebecca Solnit wrote that hope comes not from the limelight, but from the dark shadows around the edge. Uh, the limelight, after all, shines on the powerful anyway, um, and you're going to find new ideas and new ways of thinking and new paths out of the dark forest from the shadows. And so the trick is to bring people who are not currently engaged in whatever kind of activity um, into a space where they can take action um, and then hope becomes a sort of charged waiting. It allows different things to happen because you've got different sorts of engagement. I mean, that, does that kind of echo as well? Trying oh, to say that. this is possible rather than this is terrible. Um, you know, the world's fallen apart. There's nothing we can do. Well, then people will do nothing. We've got to kind of provide some sort of um, vision, hope. I know that sounds a bit kind of management speaky by saying vision, but actually hope, I think, works as a word. Yeah, look, uh, I, I love that. And I love the quote that you offered there. It really rings true to me because, you know, sometimes there's this uh, caricature of campaigners and activists, say, as being, you know, sort of angry people that um, uh, uh, you perhaps are lacking hope. But that can be further from the truth, actually. You know, actually, if you're a campaigner or activist, if you, someone are really fighting for change, that comes from a place where you have hope, you believe change is possible. You know, I can only ever do this job uh, if I believe each Monday morning... <laughs> <laughs> that the, the world can change and change for the better. If I didn't think change was possible, I'd find it really hard to do this kind of job. Um, but I have hope, I have a belief that we can change. It doesn't matter how many graphs I see that are pointing in the wrong direction about what's happening to nature. It doesn't matter how many scientific papers I read are just about how serious the climate crisis is. You know, actually, I believe change is possible and we've got to really try to focus on making that happen. And it's actually from that, as you say, from that dark place about sometimes just how bad things are, people find the hope and drive and energy to bring about that change. You grew up in Raynham um, on the Essex marshes down in the archipelago of islands and marshes and wetlands down on the Essex coast. And I'm president of the Essex Wildlife Trust. One of the things that I've noticed, and this has happened in many other counties, is how specific species can provide that hope, how people find real inspiration in the beavers, in the storks that have come back, in otters, in the bison that have just been introduced into Kent, um, the pink-footed geese that never used to come this far but now come in there, tens of thousands. And the, the beaver example struck me as, a, as an interesting thing that's happened in very many counties across the UK that provide real inspiration. People 
really like to know about them as ecosystem engineers, as transformers of the landscape, as doing the job that we used to have to pay lots of money to do for flood control or bringing back back marshes. Could you just say something about in this space of social action, wildlife uh, challenges, the bigger sustainability picture, um, about the role of individual species then in, in what they do, but in a sense also the stories they tell and how we really like them, like to jump on them. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. So I was, I was born in Raynham uh, in Essex uh, and then actually grew up in Hornchurch. Um, and uh, when I became, when I was a teenager, when I started becoming really active on environmental issues, actually in a way that my very first campaign was to join the local campaign to stop a big MCA Universal Studios being built on Raynham Marshes. Um, and I say that because it's very reminiscent of the uh, campaign that's now being done to try and stop another big theme park being built on Swanscombe Peninsula in North Kent, just across the river, really, just the other side of the Dartford Crossing. And it's just extraordinary how identical those kind of stories are. And at the time, back in the 1980s, you know, Rainer Marshes was somewhere where there was a lot of fly tipping. It was in a terrible state. It was The water levels were very, very low, so most people couldn't even see how it was a wetland. Um, it was in an awful state, despite being a uh, site of special scientific interest and so on. And, you know, you can imagine for as a teenager there the, the, for, to be campaigning against a big theme park. Most people at school thought I was completely nuts uh, and they all wanted the theme park. And actually, most of my family did as well. But and at the time, you know, there was this vision being put together by. London Wildlife Trust and Essex Wildlife Trust, I think jointly, of um, and with other nature organisations as well, that actually this could be a brilliant destination for people to go for wildlife. And, um, you know, for various reasons, that campaign was eventually won. In fact, I worked on it in my first few years as a campaign at Fensy Earth, again, a campaign there to try and stop more, a different form of development happening at Raider Marshes. And eventually it was won. And of course, uh, the beautiful thing is it is now a wonderful site managed by the RSPB uh, with hundreds of thousands of people visiting every year. And of course, they keep it nice and wet now. During that campaign in the 1980s, uh, it was talked about how this was a really important site, should be a really important site for water bowls. And I'd never seen a water vole at that stage, and I never saw any of those time away in marshes. But I took my kids back there about 10 years ago to the RSPB reserve. We went into one of the hides. I heard a nice little plop, and I looked down, and there was a water vole. I sh my kids and I watched this water vole for uh, a, a few minutes. It was absolutely fabulous. And the water vole was the ambassador in so many respects for the campaign around Rainer Marshes in the 1980s. So to then to see it about 10 years ago was really special. And as you rightly say, you know, I think talking about beavers has been a, a, a really important thing. You know, wildlife trusts across the country have in many respects led the way on trying to reintroduce beavers over the last few years. And again, they're they're brilliantly symbolic. I mean, they're beautiful creatures in their own right. Do you, right? Do you know they're one of the they're thought to be one of the fluffiest animals in the world? The density of hairs they've got per centimetre is something ridiculous. I think it's ten thousand hairs per centimetre or something like that. That might be wrong, Jules, but it is one of the densest, uh, 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 fluffiest animals in the world in that sense. But of course, they are the ultimate symbols of. Uh, ecosystem engineers, ecological processes. That's why I get so excited about them because they're not just kind of amazing fun animals, but they are indicative of the need to have nature working again. And and uh, when you see 
in some of the places where wildlife trusts have done this across the country, where beavers are being reintroduced, you see a sort of a, a landscape with beavers in it. It looks totally different to a landscape without beavers in it. And you just start to get a sense of what the UK would have looked like when beaver, beavers were across the country. And it would have looked completely different. And by my goodness, it would have been much better for nature with abundant, uh, you know, habitat, wetland habitat for insects, for birds and so on. Incredibly important. So um, I think these it is right that we focus on these the species as telling the story, the wider story. And it's important that we do make sure that that they tell the wider story about what's going on rather than just focus narrowly on the species themselves. Let, let's pick that up a bit. Craig, and think about um, what these sorts of changes to local landscapes and local, local social action can mean and should mean when we go up to the policy level. We've had a 25-year Environment Act, a new environmental improvement plan. The COP15 in Montreal said some important things about biodiversity. Net zero remains on the, on the schedule. Um, very fine targets, but still in some ways desperate times because we're not seeing big change yet. One or two hints, actually. Um, what, what are your thoughts about the kind of policy environment um, uh, when it comes to these environmental biodiversity changes that, that we're hoping to see? Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting, isn't it? We, we do start to see some hints of things moving in the right direction. Um, you know, I was at... COP15 in Montreal. And if I'm honest, I think it's, I've been to many UN COPs. COP stands for Conference of the Parties of UN Conventions. And you have the climate COPs, uh, the climate uh, gatherings, and you have the uh, nature, UN nature gatherings. Uh, they're different conventions and you have many other conventions as well. So you have lots of different COPs for these different conventions. And, and the nature COP in Montreal in in December was actually the first one of those that I've ever been to where I came back and actually we had a better outcome than I thought we were going to go into it, which is something huge to celebrate. I mean, to give you an idea what was agreed there is you had almost 200 countries say that by 2030, we want to get 30% of our land, our inland waters and our sea in recovery for nature. Bear in mind, in the UK, we, we at the Wildlife Trust think we're about three to four to per percent at the moment. So we've got a very, very long way to go. But there were also targets which haven't received so much attention, like targets to halve the harm from pesticides by 2030. I mean, that's a huge thing for us to do in the UK. And again, we'll, uh, is desperately needed to restore our pollinators to halve nutrient pollution into our rivers by 2030. So if the UK, who, you know, if enthusiastically signed up to this agreement and actually did a good job in Montreal trying to make it happen, um, if it's going to honour it and deliver it, my goodness, the UK government's got to roll its sleeves up and, and do an awful lot to make it happen. And actually all, all, the, all the governments across the four nations of the UK have got to do that. So that's kind of encouraging. But then it's really disappointing that, you know, the UK government would sign that in Montreal in December. And then this month in January um, actually then gives a derogation for the use. In other words, a, a, a supposedly a temporary, supposedly emergency permission to use for farmers to use neonicotinoids, one of the most harmful forms of pesticides you can imagine uh, on sugar beet uh, this year. And so it is just it's just extraordinary how one month you get a good news story, the next month you get a bad news story. 
And the only way I kind of make sense of this after working in sort of policy and campaigning for many years, Jules, is to think, you know, change doesn't happen in a nice linear way. I mean, you know, I wish it would. But if you look at the history of any kind of big social change, uh, it comes in kind of fits and starts, more to the point, kind of waves. So you get a wave of of action and support for your issue, and you, you need to know when you're riding on a wave and, and you kind of take things forward. And that's really exciting. Uh, and that would have been, say, on the climate, that would have been around the Paris COP and and um, and actually the Glasgow COP to, to many respects, uh, at the UN level for the Montreal COP for nature, or you kind of get these surges of support and, and things kind of happen. Climate Change Act in the UK 15 years ago and so on. These are kind of big steps forward in policy. Maybe, perhaps, just maybe, some of the changes to agricultural policy uh, that we're still debating here in in England right now. But then you get kind of pushbacks. You get a wave in and then you get a setback. And our job as as people that are trying to bring about this change actually can't be that we 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 can't change the fact that that's how change happens. You almost need to go through these ways for the for society to have the big debate and the big discussion about what's going on. Our job as people who are trying to bring about that change as campaigners, activists or whatever, is to just make sure that every time one of those waves come comes in the right direction, we push it high up the beach than ever before. And when it goes out uh, and it's going against our agenda, then we resist it and stop it going back to where we were before. And eventually, if we're successful, we'll reach the high water mark where we need to get to. And that's the kind of way to look at it, which means it's important for us to recognise, are we on a wave that's going in uh, where we push it as high as we can, or is a wave going out and we resist it? And if you think back to last September, October, in that brief period of the Liz Truss government, it became very clear very quickly that this was a huge attack on nature and all the big nature groups came together and we went into resist mode. You know, we, we realised very quickly there was nothing, to be frank, useful that was going to come from trying to have nice conversations with the Liz Truss government on nature because, uh, sadly, for whatever reason, she was determined to take us in the opposite direction. And so we had to go into resist mode and just, and thanks to hundreds of thousands of people, members across the country, we made it very clear, you know, uh, that it would be resisted. Uh, and actually, I think because of that now, we've got the government is actually starting with the Rishi Sunak government uh, for political reasons is thinking, OK, maybe we need to pay a bit more attention to this nature issue. So that's how it works. And um, that's why it's never as simple as thinking, uh, you know, is there one approach that works and another approach? It all depends on time and context. Yeah, I like that. Um, and ideally, we would want to turn it to not being two steps back and one forward and then two back, but two forward and one back, your wave analogy. Yeah, exactly. And if we're doing that, then over a relatively short time, that could add up to be quite a big difference. But we've got to accept little setbacks and, and to move into a different mode at that time um, in order to prevent the worst from happening, organise around them, um, but also help to deliver those those improvements as we move up the, up the beach, as it were. Could you just say something about just just before we finish about the urban context, the whole thing about urban greening, um, wildlife conservation organisations and priorities is not just about, as it were, rural or coastal or river or sea priorities. It's also about the places where most people live. Um, and protecting and looking after green space and engaging people in 
in community reserves, allotments, railway lines, guerrilla gardening, gardens and lawns themselves, woods in cities. All of these remain an important part of the territory as well, don't they? Absolutely, 100%. And I'll start this, Jules, by saying, um, by giving a sort of slightly embarrassing admission, which is, I don't actually really much like the word conservation, which I just don't find it does it for me, because uh, the word conservation implies, uh, at least in a in a popular sense, uh, keeping things as they are. And yet, right now, we're one of the most nature-depleted countries anywhere in the world. You know, keeping things as they are in terms of nature in the UK at the moment is not what success looks like. We've got to be really bold and really ambitious about how we put nature in recovery in this country. And, you know, our vision is that in 10, 20, 30 years' time, we have way more nature, way more abundant, way more sort of functioning, better functioning ecosystems than we have now. So that's why, well, I've just been talking as much anything about nature recovery. But there's another important aspect of that, because it's not just nature we put, need to put into recovery. It's the relationship between people and nature we've got to put into recovery. You know, there is this appalling nature disconnect in Britain now of so many children that grow up actually not really know much about nature at all or not having that sense or that connection with nature. And so actually... Putting nature in the recovery in and around our towns and cities and putting the relationship between people and nature uh, into recovery in and around our towns and cities could not be more important. And it could not be more important than right now, because during that appalling COVID pandemic, of course, people appreciated nature, local nature, more than ever before. Suddenly, you know, people were discovering nature on their doorstep they didn't know was there, even, you know, Thousands, tens of thousands of Wildlife Trust members were discovering Wildlife Trust reserves right near their house that they didn't realise were there before, and they discovered them for the first time. So we, uh, we've we launched it over the last couple of years. We've launched this uh, concept, this proposal, policy proposal, for a new designation, a planning designation called Wild Belt, because we have green belt in this country, but a lot of that green belt is actually not great for nature. It might be that there's not many buildings there, but it's not particularly good for nature. And we would like to see uh, proper kind of wild functioning ecosystems in and around our towns and cities, both for massively improving people's uh, physical and mental well-being. And we know it can do that. And by the way, that would help reduce pressures on the NHS, uh, improving the quality of our air and water in and around our towns and cities. Again, that might help the NHS a little bit. Um, but actually, just give, uh, giving this vision of, of making the UK a much nicer place to live. You know, I always um, I have this beautiful sort of dream that you travel around the country by train, by car, whatever, and that almost you know when you get to a town and city because the first thing you see is this wonderful kind of buffer of... Uh, rewilded nature around it and people kind of enjoying it and being part of it and surely you know that's a vision that you know a vast majority of people would want to sign up to and ultimately it just leads to a better quality of life for everyone so what's not to like Craig Bennett thank you very much indeed wonderful priorities for the future there thanks so much for coming on the show great to join you Jules thank you that was louder than words if you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. Have a look at the website for more information and do rate the pod if you can. <laughs>